My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with John Clark. In late January 2019, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, or OCAP, held its annual general meeting. At that meeting, longtime OCAP organizer John Clark formally retired. OCAP is a direct action-based anti-poverty organization with deep roots in Toronto's downtown East neighborhood. They distinguish between paid organizers and members, and Clark intends to remain a very active member. Still, he has been an organizer with OCAP since its founding in November of 1990, so this marks a significant transition for one of Ontario's most visible militant grassroots organizations. Clark got his start in grassroots politics in the UK in the early 1970s, initially as a student and then as a worker and trade unionist. When he immigrated to Canada in 1980, he got a job at the Westinghouse plant in London, Ontario, where he became active in the union. He was laid off during the recession of the early 1980s, but got involved in organizing unemployed workers, initially as part of a committee within his local, but eventually in a separate, city-wide organization called the London Union of Unemployed Workers. In 1989, that organization participated with many other anti-poverty, community, and labor organizations from across Ontario in organizing a three-pronged anti-poverty march that started from Windsor, Sudbury, and Ottawa and converged on Toronto. The march won significant concessions from the Liberal government of the day and laid the basis for what would become OCAP the next year. Plans to make OCAP a true province-wide coalition quickly had to be shelved in favor of being a more locally focused group based in Toronto. Heated debate between those wanting to focus on lobbying and public education versus those committed to disruptive collective action was settled at the founding conference of OCAP in favor of the latter, and John Clark was elected as organizer. During OCAP's early years, the NDP under Bob Ray was in power provincially. The Ray government never implemented the kind of massive anti-poverty agenda that some of its supporters had hoped, and it quickly moved to the right, and OCAP was among the early voices challenging them. Then the election of the Mike Harris Tories in 1995 made things spectacularly worse for people living in poverty. Their harsh cuts to welfare rates and social services resulted in a massive spike in homelessness. With the election of the Liberals in 2003, there was a switch from the more overt anti-poor approach of the Tories to what Clark describes as, quote, a much more sly and incremental intensification of the austerity agenda, end quote. After 15 years of Liberal rule, homelessness remained rampant, the Toronto shelter system was in crisis, and social assistance rates were far, far lower in constant dollars than they had been in 1995. And in 2018, the hard-right Ontario Conservatives under Doug Ford won a majority government. Through all of these years, OCAP has been active on multiple fronts. Despite the change in his role, Clark is going to continue to be fully present with OCAP as they organize and mobilize in the face of Doug Ford's vicious agenda. 
Moreover, he also wants to do what he can to contribute to broader conversations about strategy and to movement-building initiatives. He is committed to being part of the process that has already started in many communities around Ontario of working to channel the anger that is simmering beneath the surface of society into a generalized movement against the Ford government. I speak with Clark about his history of involvement in radical grassroots politics, particularly in OCAP, and about the challenges that movements in Ontario face today. I'm John Clark, and I'm with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. No longer an organiser, but still a very active member of the organisation. Back in the UK, as a very young person, I, for whatever reason, drew conclusions that we lived under a system that was inherently unfair and wanted to challenge it, and became involved initially in organising in school in a group that was working to challenge the very sort of authoritarian and regressive climate that existed within the school system at that time in the UK in the very early 70s. Left school, became active in various trade unions, trade union struggles and activities. And after I emigrated to Canada, I managed to secure a job after being in Canada a short while at the Westinghouse plant in London, Ontario. In 1980, actually, I took the job. And working in a factory, it's a place where the injustices of society and the class nature of society is really driven home. And workers gravitate towards challenging that. There was a trade union. It was the United Electrical Workers, which would now be part of Unifor. I became an active member of the local, got elected as a shop steward, got elected as a member of the executive committee of the local union, and got involved in a host of struggles around working conditions, around attempts to introduce a collaborative system known as quality of working life, a way of co-opting workers into forming a counterproductive relationship with management based on false cooperation. And then when, in 82, I found myself laid off from the job, I remained an active member of the local and worked to help form an unemployed workers committee within the local and became very, very active in that. We formed the committee to try and put into effect a principle that a trade union local should regard those members who have become unemployed still as members of the local and try to incorporate them into the life of the local. So we encourage people to attend meetings, I mean, meetings of the local, but also we would meet regularly as an unemployed committee. We would deal with individual grievances and issues that came up that related to the company, that related to the way people were being treated by utility companies and debt collectors and what have you. We were very involved as a committee in challenging the whole quality of working life scam that I'd mentioned that Westinghouse was trying to introduce and organized a major informational picket of the plant on one occasion when management put together some event to promote quality of working life. We also reached out to unionized workers in other trade unions, in other locals throughout the city, in the hopes of trying to form a committee of unemployed committees within the city. But this didn't prove to be particularly successful. It was difficult to get much formed in other workplaces, in other locals. So we went to the route of just organizing a citywide public meeting to form an organization of unemployed workers who were unionized and those who were unorganized. Coming out of that in 83, March 23rd, was the formation of an organization called the London Union of Unemployed Workers that I pretty well transferred over to at that time. It carried out much of the same functions as the earlier committee I talked about, but on a city-wide scale. So we would take up individual cases that people had, of denial of 
social assistance benefits or unemployment insurance, as it was still called at that time. We would deal with utility companies. And we started as well to challenge the local social assistance regime, the London Welfare Office, which had a set of particularly regressive policies and practices. We started to organize to try and challenge that, carried out actions of one kind or another, innumerable actions in the council chambers at City Hall. One occasion, we occupied the mayor's office over the denial of benefits to a couple of young women. And we joined with people in other cities to form something called the March Against Poverty Committee and campaigned for a 25% increase in social assistance rates throughout the province. And it was that work that led to the march in 1989 that laid the basis for the emergence of OCAP. And what did the march involve? What had happened was in the late 80s, the Liberal government of the day, headed by David Peterson, had organised a government study, a review committee to study the province's social assistance system. And as a committee, it brought down some fairly positive recommendations, including calls for substantial increases in the benefits that people were getting. But the government wasn't acting upon it. So meetings were pulled together that involved some trade unions, local community organisations, unemployed workers and anti-poverty organisations. And the NDP caucus at Queen's Park was also extremely active and played a rather central organising role in bringing the thing together. It resulted in a plan to organise a march that would really be modelled on the kind of marches that were organised in the 1930s, where we would put together three teams of marchers who would march from Windsor, Sudbury and Ottawa. And in the spring of 89, we did just that over about a 14-day period. We passed through communities along each of the three routes, rallying people, holding public meetings, and held a very, very successful and quite large rally at Queen's Park. When we arrived, it got really extensive media coverage. It had a major impact on the Peterson government. It led to generally about a 9% increase in social assistance rates, reforms within the social assistance system that were quite positive. It really had a very, very significant effect and really created, I think, a momentum that could well have gone to a level of organizing with support from trade unions and other bodies that might really have formed a really large-scale anti-poverty initiative throughout the province. That led to the formation of OCAP. The reality, however, was that just as we were being formed, the Peterson government called an election. We mobilized during that election and confronted them on their track record very aggressively, actually, along with many other people who were challenging them. And the NDP was, of course, elected and the Ray government came to power. But of course, the history of the thing is that the Ray government moved really very, very sharply to the right. And amongst other things, its appetite for anti-poverty organizing took a bit of a nosedive. And so we didn't end up getting the resources that we had imagined we would. And OCAP was formed on a much more sort of frugal basis than we'd anticipated. Hence, we've remained an organization that has links with people throughout the province and certainly in many ways is a catalyst. But the notion we had of a well-resourced, closely linked to trade union struggle, province-wide organization really never came to fruition. It wasn't actually until the 27th of November 1990 that the actual founding conference of OCAP took place and we were formally pulled together as an organization. We established a pretty significant network of supporting organizations in quite a range of communities. And we brought together a meeting that was quite politically diverse in terms of its perspectives. 
So the founding meeting of the organization took the form of a very sharp, and I would even have to say quite bitter, debate between those whose notion of an anti-poverty coalition was sort of a concerned citizens organization that would focus on respectable forms of lobbying and public education as opposed to an organization that would actually try to mobilize a grassroots movement of poor people and use collective action. And the second vision, if you will, was the one that prevailed, but it was a very sharply fought out contest, so much so that when the final decision was taken on what OCAP would be, you had a situation where about 20% of the room got up and walked out. In retrospect, they probably made the right decision. But the notion of an organization that would be based on collective action and grassroots organizing was quite hard fought. What were OCAP's early activities during the Ray government like? It was a very difficult time initially. I was elected at the founding conference as organizer. And initially, we were still trying to put in place a model of a truly province-wide federation and hoping that we would be able to find the resources to do that. So the very early months of the organization, I more or less lived on a Greyhound bus and was going from place to place trying to get things off the ground. Then the steering committee that we had together made a reluctant decision that we were were going to have to focus on organizing primarily in Toronto at that point. And we rooted ourselves in the downtown east, a very poor community within the city of Toronto. And we started to organize around people's individual cases And we started to organize broader campaigns. And in our dealings with the Ray government, it became clear that they were not following through with their agenda for people, that they were not going to address the question of poverty, that they were not going to substantially increase social assistance rates. And we found ourselves more and more challenging them. And initially, that proved to be a question of swimming against the stream. But the truth is that the Ray government went to such lengths in terms of abandoning the mandate that they had that relatively soon we found ourselves with lots of people, including many trade unions, that were ready to take action and challenge their regressive direction. One of the distinctive elements of OCAP's work over the years has been direct action casework, that is using disruptive collective action in supporting individuals who are facing some sort of injustice. Where did that approach come from? The model was already there. If you look at the organizing that was done in the 1930s, the movements in those days placed a great deal of emphasis on winning things for people, blocking evictions, taking delegations to relief offices and that kind of stuff. So we didn't invent the technique, but we did realize quite rapidly that we were going to have to use such a method if we were going to be relevant in a poor community. We couldn't just organize broad campaigns. We had to actually show that collective action would make a difference in people's lives. And so we started to bring delegations to welfare offices. We started to challenge employers who weren't paying people. We started to fight back against deportations and other such things. And that proved to be an important part of building an organization, but building a relationship with the surrounding community. So how did things change when the Harris Tories were elected in 1995? It led to an incredible intensification of the attack. Harris came to power with, amongst other things, a promise that his government would cut social assistance rates by 21.6%. And we were immediately dealing with the realization that that was impending. He'd set a date for it. So we started to organize. We organized a march out of the very poor community of Regent Park to the home of the lieutenant governor of the province who would be signing the thing into effect. And we went to his mansion in the very wealthy community of Rosedale. We organized a whole series of actions 
we, of course, were dealing with a government that was bound and determined with a substantial political mandate to put that cut into effect. We, of course, didn't stop it. But the struggle we took up against it led to a relationship with the community that we were based in and led to the bringing into our organisation large numbers of new people. And it laid the basis for the struggle against the Harris government that went on over those years, the struggles against his workfare programs, the struggle against the incredible explosion of homelessness that took place during the Harris years. So it was a very, very hard fought period. And I believe that the organizing that OCAP did, along with others, was very, very important in terms of being a catalyst for the days of action and the much more serious involvement of the trade unions, which came later. In the initial period after Harris was elected, most trade union leaders at the time were talking in terms of, you know, many of our members voted for Harris. Uh, the strategy that they had was to sort of ride it out and hope for a, a favorable electoral outcome the next time. But we took the position that that simply wasn't possible or acceptable or viable, that we were going to have to challenge them. We were going to have to fight to place limits on what they were able to get away with. Indeed, we proposed organizing on such a scale and in such a way that we could actually pose the possibility of defeating the government. The fact that we were carrying out practical, concrete struggles, but that we were advancing a perspective of a broad, working-class, united front, I think was of considerable importance in terms of attracting rank-and-file trade union activists and members and creating a kind of a clamour for the resources of the trade unions to be put into the fight against Harris. I'm not trying to inflate what we did or exaggerate it, but I think we played a very solid and important role in terms of being, as I said, a catalyst for what came later. And then once the days of action unfolded, we were very much identified with those who were pressing for escalation, pressing for a clear plan and moving towards uh, province-wide action, which ultimately, of course, was not followed through with. What were the debates about tactics like in those days? OCAP adhered to the perspective that disruptive collective action was the primary weapon of poor people, not being able, for the most part, to withdraw labour and go on strike. So forms of disruptive collective action and some of that approach ruffled some feathers, I suppose, amongst more conservative thinking people within social movements, within trade unions. But in terms of the days of action, we very much believed that what was being set in motion was something that was incredibly powerful, potentially, but that had to actually be taken forward. It wasn't enough to organize a shutdown in a particular city with a large demonstration and then leave with no clear plan. And then a few months later, do something somewhere else with, again, no clear plan. There had to be an actual plan developed to escalate the struggle to the point where it could be sufficiently economically disruptive that the ability of the Harris government to proceed with its political agenda could have been called into question. So we were, with others within the trade unions and in social movements, I think very, very much part of that kind of left wing, if you will, of the broad movement that existed at that time. How did the context for OCAP's work change when the Days of Action campaign, with its rotating one-day mass actions in different cities, petered out? We did find ourselves in an enormously difficult situation. The numbers of people being hit by the poverty agenda of Harris had become absolutely intolerable. The levels of homelessness, the number of street deaths, I mean, the things we were dealing with were dreadful. And now we had a situation where the most positive and hopeful initiative in terms of actually challenging the government had been called off. And that was an enormous blow. We tried to form a means of bringing together rank and file trade unionists and social movement activists and to try to continue with the struggle. We formed something called the Ontario Common Front 
and we carried out continuing actions and we hoped that we might be able to develop enough momentum that we could actually see something like the days of action resumed. We carried on the struggle, we took up the fight, but of course Harris, for the most part, was able to implement his agenda and that's the harsh reality. What was different under the Liberal governments that first took power in 2003? It was an incredibly politically very challenging situation because the overt and crude and extreme attack that was taking place under Harris was now replaced by a much more sly and incremental intensification of the austerity agenda. And that remained true throughout the liberal years, specifically on the question of social assistance rates. In opposition, the Liberals had hammered the Tories on how poverty was increasing, how social assistance rates were pitifully inadequate. But in power, they, of course, compounded the situation. They didn't cut the way Harris did. They didn't freeze the way Harris did, but they ensured that they gave social assistance increases below the rate of inflation so that over time, people continued to get even poorer than they were under Harris. We challenged that to the best of our ability. The kind of mass movement that had been at least close during the Harris years no longer remained a possibility, but we struggled as best we could. We took up a fight to access a benefit called the special diet that provided additional income to people on social assistance if it was agreed to by a medical provider who filled in the appropriate form. And we organized to access that benefit on a massive scale, winning tens of millions of dollars, probably hundreds of millions of dollars for people through that campaign. We challenged all of the efforts by the Liberals to further cut social assistance, their elimination of the community startup and maintenance benefit that enabled people to retain or obtain housing. We challenged that and forced them to put money back into the program. It's always been our perspective to, as we like to say, fight to win. And we've always liked to advance principled, strong, militant left positions, but also to try to influence the course of events even more by incorporating perhaps more cautious or conservative people into campaigns and struggles. The special diet is absolutely a case in point. Without large-scale participation by medical providers themselves, by community health centers, by very mainstream social agencies, without their participation, we wouldn't have been able to organize on the scale that we did. And that's remained true. It's true today in terms of the struggle against homelessness in Toronto. Without being able to incorporate people who we really must regard, I think, as limited allies in that we have quite substantial political disagreements, but nonetheless find ways to struggle together has been, I think, important and significant part of what we've done. So we went on fighting throughout the liberal years. But again, the struggle that we fought remained largely a defensive struggle. And while we made a difference, there's no question that we lost ground, that people became poorer during the liberal years, even poorer than they were under Harris. How do you understand the significance of the Ford government being elected? And how is it similar and different from the election of Mike Harris in 1995? The difference is, is that Ford comes in in the context where so much has already been destroyed. That Harris's austerity and the sly liberal austerity has done so much damage to healthcare, to social assistance, to education systems. Everything has been so cut and so damaged that really Ford is sticking the knife not into flesh, but into the bone. So the hyper austerity that he's going to implement is going to be so much more damaging than anything that Harris could do. The challenge as well, of course, is that in our view, the days of action were not carried through to the kind of level of struggle that they could and should have been. But the situation is far worse today. 
the combativity, if you will, of the major trade unions is considerably reduced. The capacity to organize a movement to challenge Ford is not presently very strong. Now, I, I don't say that from a perspective of pessimism. I think, on the contrary, that there is an incredible volatile mood of anger that exists and that things can change very, very quickly. But we do have to recognize that in terms of challenging this government, we're starting organizationally from a very, very low level. What have you learned from your decades of involvement in militant anti-poverty organizing? I think we've created a little bit of a model. People look to OCAP with some respect in other parts of Canada and even internationally. I think the basic concept of disruptive collective action as a poor people's weapon is something that we've advanced. And I think we also have to recognize that we've organized in a particular period. There's been an intensifying agenda of austerity that we've confronted. Since 2007 and the great international financial crisis, that austerity has, if anything, intensified. But the 12 years now since 2007 have taken place in a period where they have maintained some level of sluggish recovery and relative stability. There seems to be every indication that in the period ahead, that's going to be lost and that some form of major economic downturn and crisis internationally is going to be marking the situation. And so the level of the struggle in Ontario as much as anywhere else is going to have to be intensified. And that's going to mean something a lot more than OCAP is. But I hope that what OCAP has achieved is a sort of a, in some ways, a foothold for the kind of mass organizing that needs to take place in the years ahead. I think the immediate question is to engage in struggle. We don't have the kind of movement that we need, but fights are going to be taken up and people are going to learn from them. And as much as possible, we have to start generalizing that. We have to start forming anti-cuts coalitions and committees and starting to bring people together and starting to organize. But I also don't think we can have a cautious attitude. This is a period and this is a situation and a political situation in Ontario as much as anywhere else where the possibilities of explosive developments and movements of enormous scale and potential that nobody saw coming are likely to break out. So we have to do patient organizing work and we have to work with the forces that we have, but we have to reckon with the possibility, even the likelihood that things can change very, very quickly and we can find ourselves organizing and fighting back on a scale we didn't imagine possible. Of course, the occasion for this interview is your retirement as an organizer with OCAP. What does the next while hold for you as an individual? I stepped down as an organizer, though, of course, not as an OCAP member by any manner of means, but I stepped down because I wanted to focus more on less the immediate campaigns and actions that one organization is carrying out. But I wanted to do more work in terms of broad strategy, perhaps a little bit of teaching, writing, speaking. I want to sort of play a role that's a bit outside of and beyond just the organizing work of one organization. And I'm hoping that, and I believe it very likely and even extremely possible that in terms of what's happening in Ontario, that kind of generalized movement against Ford is going to be something that has a lot of challenges, but enormous possibilities. And I hope to be able to play a role in that kind of struggle. You have been listening to my interview with John Clark, longtime organizer and now active member with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. To find out more about OCAP, go to OCAP.ca. And to follow Clark's insightful and often humorously scathing political commentary, search for him on Facebook and Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.